lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, good evening and hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 126 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, January the 8th, 2022. My name is Jeremy Lee. I do want to thank last Saturday's guests. We had Carvin Chung and Ryan Nolan, two excellent episodes. Check them out if you haven't seen them yet. Later tonight on After Hours, none other than Brian Gray will be joining us to talk about the Topps acquisition of Fanatics and a few other things. So check that out. Stick around for the whole night. It's going to be an exciting evening. I've been looking forward to it all week. Next Saturday on the show, we have the early show will be Tim McInerney from Slabstrong, followed by Sean Cates of Victory Investments. He's the guy who wrote, performed, put together the video and the song for the intro to Sports Cards Live. Excited to have Sean, join us. I want to shout out channel supporter Whatnot. Check out their app for one-minute auctions and buy it now. It's hosted around the clock by some of the best graper breakers in the hobby. They also have other collectibles, including vintage video games, MetaZoo, Pokemon, Funkos, comics, all sorts of things like that. I did my second live stream on there back on December the 28th. It was a success. I want to thank everybody who did show up, hung out, and bid on some cards. Everything did ship out last week and you will be receiving them soon so thanks again to everybody for that also let everybody know the sport card expo is expanding out west to edmonton it'll be april 15th to 20 15th to 17th looking forward to that and hope to see a bunch of you there and if you haven't yet heard the mint collective has been postponed not canceled but postponed to march 25th to 27th in vegas and i'm still going to be there shout out and thank you to all the podcast listeners all you subscribers as well you know how grateful i am if you're not yet subscribed please take a moment to do so and finally guys excited to let you all know that we have launched a new sports cards live clips channel separate channel altogether dropping new videos every day in more digestible lengths be grateful if you'd go and subscribe to that channel it's simply called sports cards live clips i'll drop a link in the chat later and you can go subscribe as always for tonight your comments your questions are in play let's get to today's guest he had his first taste of cardboard in the late 80s when his dad brought home a buddy's cards for him to see what they were worth he collected through the 90s with a focus on 91 92 upper deck basketball and tops stadium club in 2010 he got to work on the tops million card giveaway but he came back strong in 2020 when he rediscovered the hobby after seeing some ads on roto grinders and he then learned of the golden sale of the lebron rpa for 1.8 million dollars he launched gemrate in may 2021 his favorite teams are the cleveland guardians cavaliers and browns his favorite athletes albert bell antoine walker randy moss and peter forsberg originally from cleveland ohio currently hailing from new york city let's bring him out ryan stazinski welcome to sports cards live how are you doing Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate you having me. Doing well tonight. Thank you. Hey, uh, it, it's it's great to have you. I've been aware of and following your your hobby uh, experience and your launch of your Gemrate tool now. Really, for uh, feels like since about April or May earlier this year. I guess you launched in May, so or since earlier uh, last year. And uh, 
you know, your tool is one of those things that's really quickly become something that the hobby is just sort of accepted and and uh, referring to and talking about. So congratulations to you. I'll start off by asking, like, did it did it launch as you expected? How uh, how did you think it was going to launch and how are you how happy are you with how it's going so far? Yeah, so it's definitely uh, exceeded my expectations on where it's at today. But I mean, I definitely launched into sort of silence as I expected back in May, you know, I, I, I sort of wanted to make sure that I windowed some of the potential for Gemrate since there wasn't a tool to sort of sh to showcase data in the way that I wanted to. And, you know, pop reports were somewhat limiting. And so that May report, you know, I was just publishing as a bit of an exercise to sort of structure the data and get it in front of people in the hobby. And I think it maybe had five or six likes on Instagram. You know, I maybe had 10 visits on the website and, you know, but it was fine. I was okay with that. Published another report in, you know, the following month. And that's where I started to get a little bit more traction. And then in July was sort of our uh, launching off point when Cardporn had picked up one of the reports that we had done. And that was the one that sort of was featuring the 1990 Jordan and speaking to the oversupply of sort of all of the, you know, the, the junk wax that was being brought onto the market. And so that was that was our big moment as far as, you know, just people becoming aware of what we were doing. And we've been able to ride the momentum the last six months to just continue to sort of build a reliable audience um, that trusts what we're doing. And we're excited about that. And so, you know, we, we've been focused, 2021 was all about trust. 2022 is going to be all about trust. But we're also going to expand a lot of our offering this year too. So it definitely went um, better than expected in that, you know, we've, we've had a lot of people paying attention to what we're doing. And that's been amazing to see. And we get a lot of support uh, unsolicited just from people saying like the hobby needed this and the transparency is amazing to have. So very happy with it so far. All right, good. Well, con congratulations with your success so far. And I wish you much more as we move forward into 2022 and beyond. And we're going to come back and talk more about Gemrate, but let's get to know you a little bit first. So, I mean, you're in the hobby, you're a collector. What is it that you're collecting, Ryan? Yeah, so I initially jumped back in. You mentioned sort of in the summer of 2020, and I was sort of caught up by all the just momentum with basketball. So I got quickly into that, spent way too much money, realized, you know, this is this part of the Gemrate story, realized they needed to recoup some of those funds and figure out what to do with all these cards that I'd acquired. Um, and then I shifted actually a lot of my attention to baseball over the last year, just because I thought it's more stable. And I'm, I'm a big data guy. And to the degree that, you know, there's a, a data uh, disadvantage or where people aren't, you know, it's not as accessible. And that's usually to my advantage than bringing that online. And so I love baseball for that standpoint. I especially love like the Bowmans of the world where it's prospects. Just because again, there's so much data out there, but it's hard to come by. So I spent a lot of time with that. And then I also, I really get into sets because I think that's sort of where you can see a lot of momentum. So, you know, players, they have in flow, but you know, sets, if you, if you sort of focus your attention on the right stuff, I like to think that those are continue, will appreciate over time and just whether that's a, in value or interest. So I put a lot of attention towards sets as opposed to players. Okay, cool. Hey, I mean, sets are what kind of got a lot of us started in the hobby back in the in the day. So I definitely understand that. I want to hear about uh, your experience uh, working with the Tops Million Card Giveaway in 2010, especially since you that opportunity for you did not come about because you were in the hobby. It kind of came about for other reasons. But uh, pretty cool that you got to do that back, uh, you know, 12 years ago now. Talk about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, it wasn't on my radar at all. You know, cards weren't on my radar at all. I was working for a a branding agency at the time and i can't remember if they came up with a tagline or if you know if that if that was exactly our responsibility but you know it was, it was basically around like the cards your mom threw away and bringing back all these old cards and sort of you know just bringing attention to them and, and th that was the essence of the giveaway essentially um i thought it was really cool to learn about it but i also got pretty quick uh a quick pretty quick understanding of some some 
how much they were struggling at that time. And I don't want to like make it sound too dramatic, but like struggling to sort of be relevant, you know, cards were sort of not the, you know, and I didn't know the whole thing with losing licenses and all that different stuff that was going on at the time. And so it was very interesting to see that they were trying to make a splash and that they were sort of, you know, a little bit of grasping at straws there to make that happen. Um, we actually had pitched them on some sneaker ideas and stuff to sort of like try to rejuvenate the brand. They didn't go forward with it, but we were trying to sort of just incorporate digital into what they're doing, try to bring in some outside ideas. But it was cool just to sort of like get back on my radar. I didn't do anything massive with it after sort of discovering that and sort of learning more about it for a few months. But it was a cool project just to sort of like, um, you know, have, have it, it was nostalgic for me in the sense I hadn't thought about it in 10 years. And it was cool to sort of just have it back on my radar. Yeah, so for sure. I mean, I think that would be cool. So the the hobby came back on your radar because of that experience you had, but you didn't really stick it out for very long at that time. You you were aware of it, but it didn't didn't really last from there. So then, you know, you, uh, several years go by and all of a sudden you see some you're you're playing your fantasy sports like many of us do, and you saw some ads on Roto Grinders, which is a very popular fantasy resource site. Um, talk a bit about what those ads were and, uh, and you know, what that kind of how that went off in your mind and what, what your what action you took from there. Yeah, it was mostly just interesting to me because I, I had heard some of the momentum around cards, but I didn't pay a ton of attention to it in the sense of, you know, I was, you know, I follow some of the Gary Vee stuff. You know, I was this classic person that was sort of adjacently trying to just um, hustle and build businesses or think about ideas and sort of want to generate income. And but cards were not at all on my radar. And daily fantasy was a thing that I was doing fantasy sports at the time. And I saw the ads for market movers within Roto Grinders. And I was just like, oh, wow, there's actually tooling in this space that didn't exist, you know, when, when I was younger. And it was cool to think about just, OK, what do these tools deliver? You know, what are they focused on? I didn't actually sign up for anything at that stage, but at least it was back on my radar. I'm like, OK, there's investment in this space. So it's, you know, that was validating that there was some momentum there. Uh, I didn't that didn't that wasn't necessarily the the. The moment that I got back in, but it definitely was one of these things. I was like another thing that sort of brought attention to, okay, cards are are having a resurgence. Let's start to pay attention. Yeah. And so the fact that you you did sort of catch wind of some of these data tools, I think you mentioned it was a market movers ad that you had seen. Did did the fact that now you you saw tools kind of did a light bulb go off in your in your head at that point, thinking, well, you know what, there's it, the hobby seems to have advanced since I was last thinking about it 10 years earlier. Uh, maybe there's something in this for me or something that I can do to to benefit the hobby. Not not at that stage. I was very much just trying to sort of get my bearings around like, you know, I was overwhelmed like so many people are when they get back in, just like how much things had changed and, you know, not knowing, you know, I didn't even know Panini was a thing at that stage and sort of to what degree they were. And, you know, I was focused on basketball. And so like quickly just trying to get up to speed on what matters and what was relevant and, you know, just trying to find a, um, some area to focus. And so not tooling was really not there in that sense. And then it was nice to know that once I started to get a little bit of momentum, that's when I started digging and be like, how do I figure out, you know, pricing? How do I navigate eBay better? And, you know, you quickly learned that there, you know, there was tooling that was, that was sort of when tool 2020s when tooling came onto the, you know, emerged in the hobby, but you know, there was still a lot of older tools and, you know, as you were trying to, as I was trying to navigate things like 130 and stuff like that, I was just like, okay, like this tool has a ton of momentum in the hobby, but it hasn't, doesn't look like it's been developed. Uh, spent had a lot of time being developed over the last few years and so it definitely started to like creep in the back of my mind of oh this this is still pretty ripe for innovation and you know i didn't again do anything with that yet but definitely started to see uh that there could be an opportunity there for sure all right so we're gonna we're gonna come we're gonna kind of meander away from that topic right now we're gonna come back to then when you did 
sort of conceived idea in your mind. But before we go that, before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the hobby and the expansion of the hobby, which we've we've all seen happen over the last couple of years, and I think we expect to happen as as we move through twenty twenty two and beyond. But you're a you're a classic. I want to say you're a classic case of somebody who kind of you know you were you were alerted to the hobby again through fantasy sports and i've always thought that you know fantasy sports participants are are just ripe for the picking for us hobbyists to to find a way to bring more of them in because you know i think we always want to grow the hobby so um talk a bit about if you can like maybe a bit the psychology or just the potential the hobby has to bring in more fantasy sports uh participants yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, so I got into fantasy sports in 1990 when season long was a thing, right? You were trying to think about people over, you know, the long run back then was a the whole season. Now, you know, over the last 10 years, daily fantasy sports are sort of, um, you know, all the rage and it's much more about performance in a very narrow window. And that certainly is something that, you know, it basically extended or sort of appealed to people who were gamblers for sure. And I've never been a big sports better, but I like the idea of betting or sort of understanding the market and sort of investing in players. And so daily fantasy was a way for me to do that. And I'm also, I have a lot of history in the stock market and I like investing in general. Um, But I do think, you know, daily fantasy players have a risk tolerance and sort of, I think the fantasy mindset sort of, you know, there's obviously some element of gambling. There's also some element of risk tolerance there. And I do think that they like to be in tune with what's happening in the market and in the sense sports. and I do think that translates to sort of where the hobby is. I think that's why you saw such just, you know, this um, momentum towards player performance impacting prices is you did have people coming in from daily fantasy. And, you know, that did sync with the idea that there were no sports to bet on back in, you know, and in, in right at the peak of the, at the start of the pandemic. And so uh, there was certainly a lot of momentum towards that. I think, a, you know, the decent amount of those players have stayed in the hobby, uh, but you've also seen them move on to other things. That's where you hear a lot about like, the short-lived investors. I'm sure a lot of that momentum came from the daily fantasy community or fantasy in general. But I also think there's an opportunity in the long run to re-sort re of um, for a resurgence of that crew if there's sort of you know potential there to see longer-term earnings as well. Uh, but you know they're quick to move on to a lot of these different opportunities. So I would say that there's there's no by by no means will we ever capture the whole fantasy market. But I do think there's pockets where people will stay for the long run, and I think we're seeing that now. Yeah, I think when you say that there's pockets, I agree, you know, there's an element of gambling when you open up sports cards, there's obviously an element of gambling when you're playing fantasy. So I can see there being, uh, you know, the link there between the, 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 the sports card collector and the fantasy player. But then there's also, you know, and maybe it's not a good example myself, but I remember, you know, through the 80s, well, the 90s, especially the 2000s, every year I would draft my team and I'd want to Put the rookie cards together and have them all to you know have them maybe displayed so i could enjoy my team through both through stats and through cards but i'm a bad example i guess because i was already into the cards but it just seemed like such a natural fit to me that i i, I can't imagine any fantasy player wouldn't want to do the same thing but that's just a very strong that's me very strongly projecting so i, I at least understand that um yeah, do you want to yeah, jump in yeah i was just gonna say i do think the um the more data that becomes available in the hobby, the more that suits the fantasy audience. I think that's sort of one of the things that probably helped accelerate that trend in 2020. And I think to the degree that more data becomes available, I mean, that that is like one thing that fuels the daily fantasy hobby or fantasy sports in general is data. And so to the degree that more data becomes available and people find like they can you know, find leverage in certain areas or find opportunities in it, 
I think you'll see a lot more people sort of re-enter the market from the fantasy side. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's a great point. Uh, one that I didn't think of. So thanks for raising it. the whole thing that you know data is might be sort of one of the mechanisms that as there's more data available, we could bring in people who are more data driven. So that's a, that's a great point. Let's go to some comments uh, in the chat. Say hello to everybody. We got Absolute joining us in the house. Good evening, Absolute Authentics. Rocco Rosato says, good evening. Sit down with a hot chocolate on a frigid evening. Let's warm up to the best hobby talk. Should be a gem rate of a show. Thanks, Rocco, and welcome. Jacob Dahl, hello. We got Alf. We got Daniel Busby says to hit that like button. Thank you. So does Justin Bode. Hello, Justin. Yeah. Skeppy in the house. Sam in the house. I did a deal with Sam today. Uh, Sam, there, there's the card that I'm going to mail out to you right there. Richard Brodeur, limited logos. Uh, there you go. Hope I didn't, uh, you know, divulge your secret there to anybody, but that's coming your way, buddy. Uh, Jake, hey, Ryan, welcome. Jeff McMahon, hello. Welcome to the show. Marco Gomes, good to see uh, Good to see you. Well, uh, let's see. A lot of chat about where to get cards graded. Yo, Jeremy from Collector's League. Yo, Jer you're, <laughs> you're Jeremy number two to me. I'm Jeremy number two to you. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Rich is in the house. Flea Market Mixtape. Oh, man, I wish I could flop down and watch the podcast, but at work and finally on a break. Well, well, you can catch it off. You can catch it later on for sure, for sure. Good evening, Brian Gray. BG will be joining us on After Hours later tonight, so be sure everyone to stick around for that. will be a treat of a show. As always, Albert Jones in the house. My guy, Steve Foley in South Florida. Good evening to you. Darren jumps in, says, what up, what up with all the talk of takeovers and licensing? Is there a database showing which players have signed card deals with who? Tiger, Michael Jordan. That's a great question. That's a great question, uh, Darren. Birds on the bat. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Sam likes his card. Good stuff. AZ Brothers. Good evening to you. Glad to have you back. Jackie V. Good evening. We got Eastridge in the house. Hey, Mike, what's going on? Sam says, you're the best. We aren't done, though. Yeah, I know. I got to send you some pictures of some more cards tomorrow. I will do that. So back to you, Ryan. We were talking about, you know, expanding of the hobby. We already, we just talked about the fantasy sports angle. But there was an interesting comment that we we kind of spoke, we, we talked towards when we were, when we met the other day. And that was that you made the comment that cards are like fashion. So can you, uh, I'll put that out there. Can you kind of discuss what you mean by that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I wasn't trying to be too provocative. I just wanted to, I, I think that there's, as I try to think about like the movement and sort of the seasonality of cards, you know, I do think there's a lot of, you know, I think of cards in general as like an expression of your identity. I, I know when I go and purchase cards, it speaks to sort of my beliefs as it relates to like the type of player that I like or, you know, uh, the type of card that I like. And so I think that one of the unlocks for the hobby is going to be showcasing. I'm really excited for more tooling to come in place to basically just allow you to showcase what that sort of, what your identity is as it relates to your portfolio of cards. You know, Instagram has been a great uh, starting point for that. I think that's why it has so much momentum. Obviously, there's the ability to message and things like that. But I mean, it is it is the sort of go-to resource right now to showcase that. But it's very limited. It's very hard to search. You know, it's not ideal. It's not built for sports cards. We've hacked that. We've hacked Instagram to make it productive for us. So the degree that people can better showcase what they what they like, I think that's a big opportunity for um, the hobby. And I also think in general um, that there's there's an opportunity to uh, bring more data to the hobby to tell better stories. And that's part of what Gemmer came to exist. So I think beyond sort of the fashion element of it's explaining and helping people understand why you believe something. 
And so it's not just putting the card out there on Instagram and letting people sort of, uh, you know, whatever, come with their own reasons to understand or think about why you may have invested in that card or added that card to your collection. And I think to the degree that people have more data to sort of support, here's my thesis on why this is interesting or sort of underappreciated in the hobby. I think that people get excited about that. And so again, I think data is going to be a big part of that story. I think Gemrate can be a part of that. And I think there's the data from sort of the sports industry that will help with this. So I think that war has been very valuable with baseball and sort of like normalizing positions and helping people appreciate the different roles that people can play in helping their teams win. And I think to the degree that you see data like that come into the basketball world, into the football world, you know, you might see things like, you know, the big guys being appreciated again, or you might see defense sort of having uh, a moment in the spotlight. So I think data can facilitate storytelling, but I also think it will help us appreciate just, you know, the, the broader role of, of players and the teams that they play on. And so I think data is a big unlock there. And then I also think the other thing is it relates to sort of the expansion of the hobby is I, one of the things I've had the hardest time wrapping my head around is, you know, I mentioned I collect sets and I, I really collect inserts in particular because that's sort of the most accessible, but I also think those have sort of the, the potential for the, the, the most appreciation over time. Um, and the thing I can't get my, you know, I can't sort of figure out is, you know, you, when you, a lot of times, and especially with, with, with baseball, when you try to collect a rainbow or something like that, when you collect a set, you know, there's, there's, you get your applause and then you kind of go tuck away your cards and they're not seen again. And then when you have, you know, you have find something else that you want to invest in, you have to break that set apart usually because other people are trying to complete their set. So usually what happens is you end up selling like these at a discount. So you end up spending all this money to collect something you're really proud of. And then to break that apart or deconstruct it, you end up taking a loss on it a lot of times. And so I'm excited for the hobby to uh, move in a direction where you're rewarded for sets beyond sort of that initial applause. And that's where I do think things like NFTs and stuff like that can start to be interesting where, it's, you know, you actually show ownership. You might have some some sort of new asset that becomes available to you if you have a moment in time where you actually own a set and there's proof that you own that set. I think that things that the grading companies are doing might facilitate some of that. So anyways, I think there's a few really interesting areas that could help fuel growth. And, you know, I don't know when that happens. I don't know if 22, 2022 is the year that it sort of hits the market, but I'm excited to see where things go. And I think there's a few different ways that the market can expand beyond sort of the obvious distribution and geographic stuff that people talk about. Are you done, man? Because holy, there was a that was a that was just a data dump of of, of nuggets that I uh, I had so many thoughts going through my mind that I wanted to respond to. I'm sure the I'm sure the chat does too, and I mean that in the best way. Um, you know, okay, so I'll start. I'm, I want to respond with this one first. Uh, you know, Instagram. You mentioned that we we have hacked it for the hobby as a way to share our collections and. Uh, we started that that line of discussion when when you had mentioned that um, cards are like fashion and it's a way to express yourself through the hobby. So I agree with that. I think I think it is, and that's the beauty of the hobby is that we all we all all of our collections are different. You know, everyone's. I don't think any two people can have the exact same collection unless all you collect is you know the, the base top set every year since whatever since whenever. But similar to to a clo your closet filled with your actual clothing fashion. No two people are going to have the same the same closets, but you can definitely have a, sem a several of the same items. So it's pretty cool that we do get to um, express ourselves through through the hobby. Now, as far as showcasing them, Instagram has given us the ability to do that. And there's also, you know, putting them out on display and showing them to your friends when they come over to your house and that sort of thing. Uh, digital seems to be the best way to, to share your collections right now. But I'm noticing... You know, within the hobby, more and more small small businesses are starting up, and their products are, are display products. I've I've got a slab shelf behind me right 
right over my shoulder right there, you know, just a way to to share your cards. And um, I wonder, you know, if 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 that's an avenue to to for more growth, just because people will see that there is a way to display their cards uh, physically. And I think, you know, there there has to be uh, really a, a, an attention to detail on preserving the cards that are on display. Nothing bothers me more than I when I see a card with a faded autograph because someone put that on display for a few years and now they're now they realize and they're trying to sell it or or they're selling it. And that's fine. You know, some people like them, some people don't. But um, that has to be thought about as well. And then the last thing, we think you know you, you see all these new. You see, we've seen many new card shops pop up recently. We've seen many card shops even reinvent themselves or move from one location to another and reinvent themselves within that move. And what are your thoughts, Ryan, on like the traditional card shop has been the same for a very long time? You know, you kind of know what to expect when you walk into a card shop. Of course, they're all different, but you sort of know what to expect when you walk in. And some of the newer stores that are that I've heard of or caught wind of are becoming almost like an art gallery in a way with really nice displays and beautiful floors and ceilings and not that typical, you know, kind of dusty card shop that we're used to. What, what do you think the future can hold in terms of um, like the future of the card shop the f- and the future of the card show as well? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, plays on what we were just talking about with showcasing. I think one of, you know, the thing that I was sort of most surprised by when I went to the national and I've been going to these shows over the past year is the trade nights that follow them have, I think are, have the most momentum. And I think are the things that people get most excited about. And it's really just a showcasing event for everybody that was at the, you know, at the the show itself. And then afterwards they get to, you know, talk about and, you know, look at other cards that aren't on the floor. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of momentum. I think that's where you're seeing the newer age shops reinvent themselves is embracing the idea of trade nights and bringing in different audience and giving them a forum to, you know, just have conversations and again, showcase. I do think you're limited to, to obviously these these tiny little boxes that we are, you know, these increasing in size, you know, suitcases that people are bringing to shows, but you know, the um, you're still limited. So, you know, my hack for when I go to shows is I have a QR code that you could snap and see my whole collection that I have on me and then also some stuff at home. So that way you can at least, again, maybe if you're passing by me or we're having a quick conversation, you want to get a better view of my, you know, what I have on me, but also what I have at home, you can quickly get that and sort of have my information. You know, things like that, that's just a little thing that I'm doing, but things like that, I think, will allow and sort of facilitate people to see what's out there and also display more of what's out there. And I think there's a ton of that. So I think hobby shops and the shows are going to embrace that. And I think we're very early in that, though. That's where I don't hear much talk about, you know, what the hobby can do to continue to innovate on that front or sort of embrace the idea of further allowing sort of the broader audience to showcase or how do we facilitate transactions on that front. So I'm excited for that, but I think we're like, very, very early in that. I, I rarely ever come across anybody talking about how to innovate in that, in that, in that space. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are, I, I know, um, show your slabs has done some collaboration with a, with a cart, with a new store. And I believe it's in Florida where they're kind of outfitting the, the shop with, with displays. And it can be very, very, uh, <laughs> fancy is the word I want to use can just be really, really nice. What, what I, some rend, some of the, uh, renditions that I've seen. So, renderings that I've seen. So um, pretty, pretty cool. I, I think, you know, I'd like to see there be a bit of an evolution in, in the card job. I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it and we're seeing it in the card shows too. There's some crafty people out there. Causeway card shows going on right now. And I hear only great things. I would love to be able to make my way out there. 
one of these shows. So you mentioned earlier, you just brought up the term, the, the, the term NFTs. And, you know, I, I kind of had this idea when it comes to NFTs and I don't, you know, I have, I have, I think one or I have two NFTs in my NFT collection right now, uh, both by, by way of gift. And, and thank you very much to those gift givers. But, um, you know, what do you think of this idea? And I, this is a very uh, unthought through idea, but I, you know, to me, the, the, one of the benefits of an NFT in the hobby could be where, let's say you have a card, let's say you have a Wayne Gretzky rookie card and you want to uh, attach an NFT to it. Well, sure. You can just take a digital picture of it and there's your NFT and get it through the NFT, uh, send it to the NFT factory and they'll turn it into an actual NFT for you. But what about, and this is totally off topic for us, Ryan, but what about, you know, to me, I see the benefit of NFT potentially being in, in title, the title to the card. So, you know, if I have a card and I want to take a, a, a digital fingerprinted image of it, similar to the fingerprinting technology we've heard about in the hobby, and then have that NFT sort of attached to the card that way, like, do you think there's ever a future where, you no one's going to buy a high end, say a high uh, any high end card without the attached NFT, which actually acts as title to the card. So it's like, you know, someone could steal your card, but then try and sell it. But the buyer might say, "Well, wait, where's the NFT title to go along with it?" And if there's no NFT title, I'm not going to buy that card. It might be stolen, which is, you know, could certainly hurt people's sales. But do we ever get to a point where there's a title? Like, there's when you can't sell a, you can't sell a plot of land without having title, right? Right. So do you ever see a time where you where people are going to uh, have title attached to card right now? There's no title to cards. We just, you know, possession is is 100 percent of the law right now. So what, what are your thoughts on that very, very uh, early idea that I had and might just be able you might just we might just toss this out in 10 seconds? No, I think it's spot on. I was actually so I've never owned a car because I live in New York City. And so you don't really can't afford to have one here can't park it but i was i was researching actually titles and sort of the mechanics of it because i think it totally plays into it and the role the question is what you know where does where does it sort of enter the conversation if, if nfts become a thing as it relates to the the card hobby here and i think grading companies can play a role in that it's not totally clear sort of like how the manufacturers play a role in this but i definitely think that's sort of a way that this could play out and i definitely i think that yes what you're suggesting there you know it's not hard for me to imagine 10 years from now when, yeah, if you don't have that digital record, it's assumed that you have not acquired that card sort of in a kosher way. And so I think that there's definitely a world where that plays out. I'm excited to think about that. I'm so new into this space too, and I haven't spent much time. I'm just so busy on Gemrate that I haven't really gone deep on NFTs, but that underlying concept makes a ton of sense to me. And I think that there's momentum there. So I'm, I'm not, I'm very open-minded and I'm when, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people in the hobby that are quick to dismiss the role NFTs can play, but I actually see them as being, something that can complement the, the the hobby very well. Again, I mentioned it was sets and sort of proof of ownership and there being some sort of reward mechanism or exclusivity uh, unlock there that you can have when you own things. And I also think the title part of it is a big part of this equation too. So I'm, I'm excited for, you know, that to be a, a broader conversation that the hobby embraces. Yeah. Yeah. Proof of ownership and complementing hobby, not replacing or being this or that sort of thing. It's not totally. cards or NFTs. Maybe NFTs become an, a, a complement to the card itself and, and really a, a key component of the card. You never know. But that's just uh, put that out there to everybody, for everybody to think about it. 
are we crazy? Am I crazy thinking of that idea? Or is that a potential reality? I mean, at one point, no one thought every every card at a card show would be graded. And nowadays, it seems like they all are. So you never know. It would be a while for that to, to actually take take over. But um, but anyway, something that I was thinking about, and I thought now was a good time to talk about it. Uh, okay, let's go to, back to some comments here. Kurt Renault, uh, glad to have you back. Welcome to the show. Joe Perot in Santa Cruz, what's going on? Scott Green wants to hear how much I love Kale McCarr, legend in the... Yeah, I mean, this guy might be like, what, the fifth defenseman ever to score 30 goals or whatever that that uh, that stat was that I read earlier today or yesterday. I do like Kale McCarr a lot, uh, Scott Green. So if you're collecting him, congratulations. I'm sure you are doing well. Tidas at social media was huge as well, for sure. Sam says, I couldn't agree with you guys more. Cards are like women. I like them. Sexy with great high appeal. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for that. Canada Blue, welcome to the show. Says 67 watchers, 19 likes. Click your like button. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Cardboard Culture, my buddy Amit uh, has done the same with the respect to QR codes. Yeah. At the Expo in Toronto, Amit had a big QR code. It was big. It was like a big poster. He had it. At his booth, you could scan it in and it would take you to all of his cars. A great tool for a card show uh, vendor. Darren says, a friend says he's bullish on CSG. I kind of like the looks of the Wander Francos. Are we throwing money away or will the hobby accept these fringe grading companies? Well, interesting comment, Darren. To me, CSG is not fringe. Uh, they, they are above fringe. Uh, the other ones you list, I'm not familiar with ISA, I don't think. Uh, and HGA, yeah, I mean, I consider these fringe. Anyone who's not the... To me, the big four uh, is fringe. So um, are we throwing our money away? We'll let the chat take care of that question. Peeps, uh, good evening to you. Jackie V says, could we buy Slab Shelf in Canada? Yes, you can. You can buy Slab Shelf in Canada, Jackie. Go to slabshelf.com. I'm going to guess right now is the website. I don't have it handy, but check it out. They will ship to you. They ship one to me. They'll ship one to you, Jackie. Lucky says, I'm not sure you can legally create an NFT to your own card. You didn't create the artwork for high-end limited cards. They could sell you an NFT and then send you the card. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, potential legal legal issue with respect to it. But I don't know. If you if you, uh, you own an Opeachy card and uh, or a Topps card for that matter. Anyway, we'll let, the, we'll let the lawyers talk about that one. Rock Latex says, PSA registry is the closest thing to proof of ownership right now. Good point. Good point. Birds on the bat, my only fear with NFTs being attached to cards, which sounds actually very beneficial, is the small chance someone could hack your portfolio and steal your whole collection via the deeds. Very true. Very true. Peeps, you might want to start taking those pictures. At that point, it doesn't matter if you own the items. If someone has the deeds, they own the cards. Yeah, if you're hacked, you're hacked. Yeah, they say there's going to be pros and cons uh, to everything. Do you think there is a subjective yet reasonable equation to estimate cards that have been regraded within any group up? Yeah, that's a great question, Skeppy. Me and Bobby Burrell had that. We used to, we we used to kind of be, we debated this a long time ago. We debated it a long time ago. I thought that the margin of error in the overall uh, pop reports was in that like five to ten percent range, and Bobby thought it was more like thirty percent, I believe. And Bobby, if you're watching, correct me if I'm wrong with that with that number, but I, I seem to remember that's what it was. But let's turn it over to the expert in populations right now. Ryan, what how, how what do you think? I mean, who's closer, Bobby at 30% or me at that uh, 10 under 10% in terms of, you know, the errors, not, not the errors, but the inaccuracies in the pop reports based on people cracking cards out and resubmitting or a fake card in a slab and that sort of thing. So one quick thing just to, 
um, that I was thinking about recently, and I'll move past this quickly. Um, the cracking thing is so interesting because I don't have a good answer to your question. I mean, I have to, I'll have to survey people to sort of understand, you know, how they participate in the hobby to sort of figure out that number. I don't even know that the grading companies themselves know. But if you could imagine a world where like there's NFTs tied to cards that have been graded and when people crack them out, that's essentially what a burn is in an NFT world. And that card sort of disappears from the pop report that could alleviate some of this problem in the sense of once a card's out of the case, if there's technology actually built into these car into these slabs, then maybe there's a way to actually better control populations. And so I was thinking about that recently. Just that would be a cool way to see somebody like PSA back at these guys innovate in the hobby is to build technology into the slabs themselves to help with this question. Because I don't, again, I don't have an answer to this. I just don't know. But I definitely, I mean, it could be 10, it could be 30. I don't, I don't know how we know, right? I mean, yeah, it happens more than I think I realize. And you can see that there's these pockets in the pop report where you're like, how does, how are so many of these, you know, in existence? And obviously it's just people that are persistent and have the bankroll to do it. Um, but it's hard to say. I really, I have no idea. Wouldn't it be cool? You know, I've got a home security system. We've got this glass break technology in the house. So if any, if any window breaks in the house, the alarm's going to go off. So wouldn't it be neat if you could have a, a, a slab technology, like slab break technology, whereas any time a slab actually was, was cracked open, a signal would go from that slab to PSA or BGS or whoever, and they would they would right away know that there's one last one less slab in the population. That'd be pretty funny. I think that's, you know, they're, they're obviously trying to do that with fingerprinting to some degree. But yeah, I think there's a couple of different ways to tackle that. But yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. So Brian Gray says, make sure to ask him about the legal NFT creation on After Hours. So there you go, BG. We'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue that discussion uh, later on tonight. Hello to one of one memorabilia cards in Australia. Great to have Australians watching the show as always. Peep says, Gemrate is amazing, by the way. Thank you, Ryan. That's very nice. Very nice. Eric says, every card I have ever cracked out, I have called or emailed PSA and Beckett to inform them to remove those certs from the registry. Well, that's pretty good of you, Eric. I mean, I think they'd want to see that cert outside of the slab itself uh, versus just taking someone's word for it, I, I would guess. But in any event, uh, that's the right, I think that's a good way to do it, Eric S. Let's let's switch it up, Ryan. Let's talk a bit about the similar, and now you have a, you do have a finance background. You're a data guy. You have a finance background too. And, you know, we, we had a great time chatting the other night. So, um, I was interested in your thoughts around the similarities between the between sport the sports card market and the stock market. And one of the when we were talking about that, the really the thread of discussion that interested me the most were your thoughts on the market cap of a card and whether or not it makes sense in sports cards. So why don't you speak to speak to that? Yeah, I think that the way that I think is going to be productive over the long. So I think market caps are a great concept. I think that the hobby is still sort of learning where the fit is. And I think that market caps as it relates to cards is a little bit narrow and probably doesn't service the hobby that the way that I think people want it to. I think that to the degree that there's market caps around players, I think that's going to be really important. And I think that some of these tools are set up to start to provide that because I don't think that we, you know, I think one, all these sets and all the variation year by year and all the different parallels that are introduced make it really hard. It's not an apples to apples conversation from year to year. It's hard to even compare set to set at this stage. And so to the degree when you're entering the market, when I know when I come in, I'm like, hey, what is the you know market for John Moran look like? And I want to understand where it looks like relative to other players. And so I want to know how many people are interested in him. what's the demand for John Moran cards? What is his market cap relative to Zion? And when I look at that, I want to say, okay, are, are Jaws cards undervalued? Are they overvalued? 
And I think that's something like Hard Ladder is doing some interesting stuff there with their player indexes. I think that starts that conversation. Their data base has to expand massively to, to sort of like capture market cap though in that, in that way. Uh, and I think that's a big part of why PSA was excited about what they're doing. But I definitely think that market cap will play a role, but I'm excited for it to move to a little bit more of the macro side of things around like players themselves. I think, again, it's like, if you look at cards, it's like trying to compare, you know, Disney's theme parks to Apple's AirPods, both super interesting. People like Disney a lot, people like Apple a lot, but you can't really compare the two. They're very different lines of businesses, very different contexts. And I think you see a lot of that with cards. I don't know if that's like the perfect metaphor, but it's at least a starting point for me when I think about how limiting market cap through the lens of cards is today and where it might be able to expand to in the future. Okay, interesting. I, I want I want to keep going on that topic for a moment. Um, you mentioned card ladder. I noticed today the card ladder passed the twenty thousand cards in their database uh, milestone today. So if anyone from card ladder is watching or listening, congratulations to you guys on that milestone. But yeah, their you know and their acquisition by collectors uh, is definitely going to help them you know really accelerate the the rate at which they add cards to the database. So I think uh, the from zero to twenty thousand. If that took if that took you know a year and a half twenty thousand to a hundred thousand and and pass should be a lot quicker so I'm sure it will be okay um, I see bless and break says you were hoping I would have done a live review of the golden auction tonight but definitely appreciate tonight's guest glad to have you bless and breaks Eric says that they asked me to send the labels back for proof uh, talking about breaking out the BGS that's that makes a lot of sense for sure for sure so back to market cap for a sec though. So to me, when I think about the market cap, I think I like to think that it is comparable and there is some benefit to it when you're talking, especially about commodity cards. To me, it doesn't make as much sense on a super limited card or super high end card, but it does make sense to me if I'm going to compare the prism silver of, 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 you know, Luca to Giannis to whomever else to to jaw to Trey, all, all these different guys. Tyler Hero, or if you're going to compare the young guns of Sidney Crosby to Alex Ovechkin and Connor McDavid, to me, that is a metric that is interesting, but the whole picture isn't in the market cap. You still need to know how many cards, how many cards and what's the price per card? What's the overall market cap? Because that's, that's the total, that's the total, um, I'm going to say this and then qualify. That's all, that's the total money invested at that time. Now we know that it's not the money invested because there was unrealized losses and gains depending on where you got in. But that's the value at that point in time, based on that most recent comp or that, that most the, the average of the few most recent comps um, uh, of all the cards that exist. So is that not valuable somewhat to the hobby to say, okay, you know what? If you take two players, A and B, and player A, the card is worth $1,000 and there's been 1,000 cards graded. And player B, the card's worth $2,000 and there's been 500 cards graded. They both have the same market cap. One's worth a lot more maybe because the print run is lower or or maybe that's why. And and, and the other one's worth worth what he is. So maybe there's some value in going for the, for the cheaper guy right now because you think, well, this other guy, he's hot right now. His pop is going to catch up to the cheaper guy. So maybe there's value there for market in, in terms of market cap. So... I can see it being valuable and of use uh, if you are looking at all the information. Market cap itself means nothing unless you know the share price. It's like at, on, at the same rate, share price means nothing unless you know the market cap. You need both of those pieces of information to make an informed decision or at least a semi-informed decision. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that there's... so. 
I'm not dismissing market cap as it exists today. I'm just saying it's a it's an early advancement on where the, I think the hobby can go. But I think it's an advancement over what you know you hear, you see in stocks when people are new coming in and you know investing in Rob you know jumping into Robinhood. They look at prices and they say, oh, this is expensive. Rel-, you know something is priced at five hundred and that's expensive relative to, to something at twenty dollars. And the challenge you have is you need to know the shares outstanding to actually know how much that company is valued at to actually understand the market cap for a stock. And I think that is relevant within this context of we don't want people just talking about prices of cards because it's limiting and you need to know the population of the cards, which essentially are the equivalent to shares here. Um, I do think it is specific to the, to the examples you mentioned, I think they're very relevant. So when you're staying narrowly within like Prism Base or Prism Silvers, I think they're really relevant. I think it's when you're trying to compare, you know, things that are not necessarily um, that closely related and you're trying to compare a exquisite to national treasures. I think it gets a lot harder. Granted, there's serial numbers in play, and I think that helps to, to sort of even things out or level the playing field a little bit. But I think it's great for what you described there. And I think it's more challenging when you start to go across sets and stuff like that. So I think when you're narrowly looking at market cap, I think it's very relevant. I think as you start to expand beyond that, it gets tricky. Yeah, more challenging across sets, more challenging across eras, and even challenging across sports overall. All that said, I remember, you know, we all remember probably uh, just over a year ago, it seemed to me, you know, modern had really gone crazy, you know, the high-end modern, and all of a sudden the vintage tended to have caught up. And I think if you were to look at the market caps back then of, say, the LeBron James National Treasures versus uh, 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 Bill Russell, 57 tops rookie, you'd say, well, hey, there's way more money invested in LeBron than than Bill Russell or Wilt Chamberlain for that matter, you know? So, and then this might not be a great example, but you get the point. And then all of a sudden those vintage cards really started to catch up in value, um, you know, on a comparable rate. Like if you, even if you compare say the Mike Trout that sold, I think Ken Golden sold the Mike Trout uh, in, in 2020 for 3.6 million or something like that. And that was more than a Mickey Mantle had sold for or a Honus Wagner had sold for up until that point. And then all of a sudden the Mickey Mantle and the Honus Wagner started to sell for that much. They kind of caught up again. I wonder how much of that was the market responding to, to market cap, but, but maybe not knowing they were responding to it to sp- specifically to the market cap of, of a specific card, but yet the market cap, the result of that was that they kind of caught up the market cap of vintage caught up somewhat to the market cap of, of um, modern. Now I say this without any data to back it up. It's just, I'm just going by gut. So I could be completely wrong, but I think that that's, you know, part of the process. I think a lot of times we, as collectors, we, we go, we do go by our gut and feel, you know, what's something worth? Well, you can check comps, you can check market caps and all this stuff compared to other players. But at the end of the day, you're going to go with what you think makes sense. And people thought that vintage was undervalued compared to modern and vintage caught up quite a bit back then. So I wonder how much that ties in, if at all, to market cap. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think it does. I just think that it's a little bit more of that exercise that I was mentioning before. But I think people will look at it in aggregate and sort of say, wait, this seems, you know, uh, not calibrated the way it should be in the sense that, you know, these these modern cards, if you collectively look at the pool that's invested there, it's, you know, equal to this much. And, you know, if we look at vintage, it's way undervalued relative to that. And we'll see, you know, see that sort of rise accordingly. And so I think it matters. I think when you roll it up, it makes a ton of sense. And I, again, I think market cap as a concept makes sense. I just like to sort of um, caution people on looking at it at the card level. Yeah. Like, okay, I think it's, cool. I think it's relevant but limiting. 
Makes sense. Uh, makes sense to me. All right, uh, Peter Collect, we are definitely going to be talking about that question, just not quite yet, but we will definitely get to the idea of a universal pop report. I promise you that. I wanted to go next to Lucky K. Says, smash that like button, everybody. Thank you, Lucky K. Michael Ham, what's going on with you? Great to have you. TDOS says, market cap is a better tool for expensive cards. Okay. I mean, I was saying more for commodities, but maybe... I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to argue it with TDOT. I need to think it through a bit more. And I'd like to have a, a better, a, a broader discussion on that to just have the opportunity to really work that out in my own head and see where I, where I land. A diff, uh, Birds on the Bat says, the difficulty with market cap, in my opinion, is how to consider potential for future population growth. It will always impact the market cap of cards from recent years and also cards that aren't graded often. True. I would compare that to the to to when a company uh, issues issues shares from Treasury, which just dilutes the market. So what Birds on the Bat is referring to is dilution, and that happens in it happens all the time in in the equity world. So uh, maybe there is a lesson to be learned, or some similarities that can be drawn from there as well. But a great call out there by Birds on the Bat for sure. A T dot says when I bought my PSA ten Ron Francis for a grand, and there were. 40 out there i was like yes please and there were 40 yeah that's a low pop for sure for sure whereas about my opinion this principle will always impact the market cap of junk wax era cards okay so you also made the comment to me the other day ryan that expectation drives pricing now to me that's obvious expectation drives pricing expectation of a player's potential of play what they're going to do on the field on the court on the rink that sort of thing what but what do when you said that uh what do you mean by that specifically expectation drives pricing well i think what i mean by that is today's price usually uh reflects uh expectations in the sense of you know what we're seeing from historical performance so it's kind of like if you take the known and you project out those are what the expectations are those are the expectations that are being baked into prices today and so what i mean by that is you know, it takes something sort of trajectory changing to change or alter the price of a card or an asset. And so in, in, in this world, that's why you need to see things like, well, take a step back. You know, you have this phenomenon right now, which is very unusual for me, at least watching, which is, you know, the beginning of seasons, which, you know, historically has been a thing in the card market. I understand that. And I've been paying a lot of attention to sort of like how that's played out over the years. But you have this weird moment where so in stocks, you give guidance. You sort of say, like, here's where the low end of, you know, here's where we think the company might be at the low end of the range and at the high end of the range. And you kind of have some of that with in the card market of here's where we think players' projections are. Here's sort of the variance or sort of the range that they might perform this year. What happens at the beginning of these seasons is everybody is priced to the upside or sort of the high end of that range collectively. And then the market sort of works backwards because it's, it's, a, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game, but it's pretty close in the sense of, not all these players can achieve these high end of the expectations at once, right? But yet we've, as a market, we've collectively said, okay, we're going to move everything to this high end and then we're going to work backwards. And so everybody sort of, you know, we see this with basketball today. It's how come all these players are performing really well and are in the MVP conversation or in the most improved player conversation, all these different, you know, they're up for all these different awards. Why are their cards not appreciating? Number one, it was already factored that these players are going to be in the mix. Um, and, and that's probably the most important thing. And then the players that you are seeing outperform are the ones that had expectations reset by something that changed. Their performance was better than expected. And so what I mean by that is today's price factors a lot of upside. And what you need to sort of break out of that is you need something trajectory changing to happen. And that's not that frequent of occurrence. And so that's why you're seeing a lot of these cards pull back because everything sort of at the same time in sync is moving to the high end and working backwards. 
And it's a weird phenomenon. You also see that with wax to some degree. And we might talk about this a little bit later because that's that market has been greatly impacted by expectations too and sort of the, the timing of the release of products right now. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into that at this stage, but I think it's interesting. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to just kind of bounce, bounce back here for a minute and just uh, talk about, you know, at the beginning of any, of any season, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, I'm sure, although I don't follow it. F1, I'm sure. Um, at the beginning of any season, every fan has hope for their favorite team and favorite players, favorite teams, favorite players, all that lots of hope. No one's hurt yet. Most of the time, no one's the season hasn't started. Nobody has, has, has not met expectations. Um, you know, no one's, no one's starting the season off with a slump. There's no, no sophomore slumps that have really actually occurred yet. And so at the beginning of the season, we, we have a very, uh, very high expectation of all of our favorite players going in. And I, I always found that that's kind of the best time. If you have cards, you want to sell the best time to sell is going into the season or going into the playoffs because all the teams that are going to the playoffs have the chance of winning the championship right before the playoffs start or very, very early in the first week of the playoffs. So right there, you know, again, you see that expectation drive expectation, hope, loyalty, you know, fanaticism, it all drives expectation. And uh, so I don't know, just a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a parallel there uh, as far as that goes. Um, I'm going to go to a comment here. Uh, T dot says the Luca prices are laughable. Vintage is when people graduate. So a couple, couple responses to that comment, um, you know, and it ties into what we were talking about before saying that, you know, when I was saying that uh, vintage caught up to modern, well, before vintage could catch up to modern, modern had to catch up to vintage and surpass it. And that, that happened very quickly. And I think it happened, because people wanted to collect the players that they love today. And people started to realize that, hey, wait a second, if LeBron James or Mike Trout are the best of their generation, then why shouldn't they, their cards, regardless if they were made 50 years later, why shouldn't their cards sell for as much as Mickey Mantle and Will Chamberlain, who were the best of their generation? So, or, you know, among the best of their generation. And I think that's when people started putting big money into Luca, LeBron, Patrick Mahomes, you know, Connor McDavid, these kinds of players. And, and then, and then we saw basically November, December of 2020. So over a year ago when it kind of reversed out again and, and, and vintage or, or, or yeah, vintage caught back up again. So to, to T dot's comment here to say the Luca prices are laughable. Well, they've been, they've been up and down. I mean, the prism silver, the, the, the base prism PSA 10 went from, you know, 60 bucks to 2000 down to like five or 600 now. So what was, when was it, is it laughable now? Was it laughable at 2000? Or has it been, or has it just been laughable the whole time? Or is it just because people want to collect cards of players that they're watching today? So that's the that's the first thing. The second comment is vintage is when people graduate. And I don't think there's anything really wrong with that comment because I've all you know, I've said it, many people have said, and I think it's it's how what we experience as collectors is you kind of come in because you're a fan of the players of today. A lot of people do. And then as you as you do mature in or, or time goes by and you you grow within the hobby, uh, you do sort of start to look backwards and hopefully people will always continue to look backwards and the, the vintage and older cards will continue to have meaning in our hobby for more generations to come. So 
Uh, okay, uh, Peter collects as I track market cap for for rookie cards of players I collect all grades times value grade. It's super interesting. It's tough for modern. Uh, do you just add? Do you just add Young Guns, Future Watch, the couple? Yeah, I think I think when you're analyzing market caps across a certain player and their cards, you have to decide what 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 you want to put into the that that bowl of soup for yourself. What do you want to mix in there uh, yourself? So, good question there. Skeppy says the problem with market cap on cards is the card market is unregulated, way too much potential manipulation. Stocks, while still subject to manipulation, is not nearly as widespread as cards can be. I would actually think, Skeppy, it's probably way more widespread than cards because because the stock market is just that much more widespread than the hobby. So it's probably way more widespread than it is in cards, like by a many, many, many factor, I would think, a very high factor. Lucky says this year is strange because we get to see the rookie performance before their higher end cards come out. That's a good point, right? That's that's we are in a very uh, different sort of year for sure, for sure. Bobby Burrell says great thought. It was thirty percent, but the caveat in the higher grade. So I w- I did remember the thirty percent uh, correctly. Tito says stocks are the exact same way as picking players. Data gets backed into the price. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started on the stock market. Uh, birth on the bat, in my opinion, modern price modern price values just operate under a different principle from vintage. People who go heavy into modern often do so because it's akin to gambling. There's higher potential for price swings. Yeah, I agree with that. Eric says, I disagree. People started listening to Gary V and other entities because they had to find another way to invest money, which caused hype. And now we see the nuclear fallout i'm not seeing a nuclear fallout at all i don't know what you're looking at eric or what what else you're watching on youtube but um i'm not seeing a nuclear fallout uh, at all actually it's it seems like every day that i look at uh you know my collection and card ladder it's 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 going up a little bit every, every day i haven't had a down day in, in quite some time which which is nice and we're continuing to see records broken so i think that's just a false narrative or a, a very incomplete one at least eric uh, Bobby Baseball, do you think that high-grade GOAT vintage cards will continue to carry such a high premium multiple to mid-grade strong eye appeals, or will the multiple compress over time? What do you think, Ryan? You know, vintage is interesting because I'm not in that market. I feel disadvantaged, and so I'm not heavy into vintage. I'm excited to sort of work my way towards that, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know to what degree that sort of premium exists. I do think... Yeah, I don't have a strong opinion just because, I, and I don't want to weigh in too much here because I'm not in vintage. Something that's interesting to me, but I don't have a good answer on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. There's so many factors at play with it that, that can come into play with it. I feel um, like, you know, the, a common mantra in, in, in investing in collectibles is buy the best you can afford. And I think a lot of people do follow that. And that's partially why we have, you know, that, why we have high value, high grade items. It's also, they're just rarer. It, it, I think a lot of it is based on the populations. The pop reports have become so important for people in understanding what the supply is of the card that they're invested in or considering investing in or collecting. So uh, that, that's going to be a, a part of it as well. And, and then the other part, the, the, the other side of it is that, well, those mid grades are more affordable to many more people. So maybe those people who can't buy a card for a million, but can buy a card, I'll use a different number. People who can't buy a card for 10 grand, but can buy a card for a thousand, maybe we'll have more competition on those cards for a thousand. And that thousand dollar card will turn into a $2,000 card just based on demand. While that high end $10,000 card might stay at $10,000. 
So there we've closed the gap in that situation. Is that gonna is that gonna actually occur? Probably for some in some with some cards in some situations, but unli- unlikely with some others. So time will tell. It's a, a great thought experiment and something to think about, though I believe. Uh, T says even the stock market is seasonal, like the gold market, like the gold market and the card market for sure. Moose says, well, will product pricing regulate so I can have a genuine experience ripping wax again? Good question. I I don't think it'll regulate, but it might change. It might it might change. We will see. We will see. Okay, let's uh, let's jump in and, and learn a bit more about uh, the gem rate and the tool that you've built, because as you can even see from the from the chat, a lot of people are thanking you for it. They love what you're doing. I think it's amazing. It's something like uh, I wonder if I can find it really quickly here. I um I used to keep uh I used to keep track on the on the the population of PSA tens of certain young guns in hockey. Like it was basically McDavid, Crosby, and Ovechkin. I wanted to know what those, you know, how many there were of each card. And I'm, a, I'm a, I had a sheet from years ago. I didn't have the year written down, but I had the, the date, like whether it was December 2nd, I took those stats. And so I was I was tracking population reports of certain cards going back probably five years ago or so because it was very interesting to me. Now you've taken it to, a, you, I was literally on one post-it note, you know, and I'd update, I just add another column every time I did it. Uh, you've gone to all new lengths to build out a tool that tracks population. So let's get into Gemrate. Your, 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 your tool is called Gemrate, gemrate.com. Let's start at the, really at the beginning. What's the what's the mission, the purpose, uh, the business model of Gemrate? What, let's start with the mission and the purpose. Yeah, so the mission and the purpose that I built, it was sort of what I was using it for. And sort of the reason it came to fruition was I was trying to find uh, undervalued or underappreciated cards that I could add to my portfolio or collection. And so that was sort of the, the impetus for it. And I just, I needed also quick context. So as somebody who's new coming back and or, uh reestablishing themselves in the hobby. I, you know, I didn't know what the landscape looked like. And so pop reports were sort of my way to quickly get context. It was just so painful to sort of navigate at the time. And and some of the sites have uh, revamped their offering a bit, but it was really painful. And so for me, there was a couple of things. It was quick context that I needed to understand. And also I was trying to maximize sort of the return of my, of my collection. And a lot of my cards were raw and I was trying to figure out where do I grade these things? You know, like what are the differences and the nuances within the different grading companies? What does the, the landscape look like there? And sort of, are there, is there inefficiencies in the market or sort of opportunities to exploit where some companies grade a certain card better than others? And so I started just digging into pop reports and it was like my wheelhouse of so much data, but really hard to come by and very frustrating to use. And I was sick and tired of sort of putting things, you know, basically copying and pasting all the way down on the Panini Prism pop report, which, you know, would have this continuous scroll and just make it impossible to do. And I was tired of copying that over to Google Sheets. And I just said, is there a way I can start to do this in a way that's scalable? And I looked into the mechanics of it and I got excited to see like, okay, this data is workable. It's just really hard to sort of get into the shape that I need to do it. And I just did a a lot of research on it, a lot of thinking. I had a few different ideas in the hobby that I wanted to explore. And this was the one I was most passionate about. And I think it was, there was a couple of reasons. One was my finance background at the time, Collectors Universe was a public company. And I was like, it'd be really interesting to collect this data and sort of have a better feel for how the company was performing was one side of it. So there, there was the investment side of it purely from like a stock standpoint. And there was also then the card side of it, which I was like, what am I doing with all these cards that I spent all this money on? How do I recoup some of it? How do I sort of set it up for long-term success? Um, and I just felt that there was a big opportunity to bring that data 
online in a way that would be not only something that I could appreciate, but I was like, what could I productize again to our earlier conversation around, you know, this hobby is still only recently had a lot of capital invested in it from a technology standpoint. What are things that I could do to help advance it? And so I said, what could I build for myself that other people appreciate? And I was thinking, you know, some sort of pop report on steroids was the first sort of thing I was thinking about. And then also I was frustrated with the idea of, you know, when I came in, the lens of population only being viewed through a grading company when I knew that there were other cards that existed. So, you know, I didn't just want to know only PSA. When I wanted to know how many cards, what was the supply of a certain card or a certain set, you know, you know, it's helpful sometimes to think about it through the lens of a grading company in some context. But when I want to understand the full supply or sort of what's out there, I wanted to understand the full population. And so that's not just a single grading company. And so I started to just think about what would it look like to bring sort of this, you know, global or total population to market. And I really wanted to focus on making that uh, something that I could bring to the market. So a lot of research went into it. And um, the goal again is just quick context, number one, but also helping you figure out how to, how to sort of get the most out of your collection. And then ideally it's add the discover cards in the sort of most efficient way and in the most affordable way to add to your sort of portfolio or your collection. Okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a lot there. And um, obviously, you know, you, you saw a need, you, you saw that there was an, a, the potential for this tool to help people, including yourself. And that's, I think that's oftentimes how the, how innovation is, is sparked because people, you know, you see a need and you decide to find a way to, to fill it. So good on you for doing that. Do you, you know, this service, this tool that you offer, is it, is it free and will it continue to be free? What, what are your thoughts there? What's your, and then from there, what's your business model? Any plans to monetize? Yeah. So right now the content is all free and the, 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 the app itself, the website is free. Um, there's definitely plans to monetize and I'll come back to that, but right now it's free. The part of the reason it's free is I didn't really think that there was a population that was serving, you know, population report that was serving the market well. And I want to give people the experience of, oh, wow, look, these are different ways that I can cut the data. I can look at it by, by player. I can look at it by parallel. I can look at it. You know, I can combine different sets and look at 2018 versus 2019, all in the same view. And so I didn't want to put up a window or sort of, I mean, or some sort of wall to prevent people from understanding what that could look like. So it's been free since I launched it. And there's some elements of it that will remain free. The content itself, I plan to keep free because I think that's interesting to the, interesting to the hobby, very useful and helps bring a lot of transparency to the market. I do plan to monetize some of the app though, in the sense of people like myself, sort of the power users or sort of the people that really want to go deep into it. You know, it's number one, it's expensive to collect this data and I need to recoup some of my costs at some point. You know, this is, um, I'm a, it's a bootstrap company that I am supporting right now. And I hope, you know, it's not only for the good of the hobby, certainly, you know, there's, I, I did have a business idea in mind here, a business plan in mind. Um, but I do hope to monetize in the sense that I'd like hopefully to put a plan out there, but I like, if I like what's in the market today and I want to sort of follow that path in the sense of I want it to be affordable. And so very much thinking about what that looks like. And I've been very patient in the sense of I mentioned this earlier, but I want to build trust this year. And I really want to understand like how people are using the tool and what sort of I understood early was that it's very early in the discovery process. Again, it's like, hey, I'm thinking about I always use Chris Middleton because he's like such this obscure player that nobody really knows like what his card market looks like, if it even exists. And so if I want to jump in there and understand that really quickly, generates a good jumping off point for it. You're not going to go immediately transact. You might go to card letter. You might go to market movers. You might even go to eBay after that. But anyways, it's early. And I need to understand the role that I played before I wanted to put monetization in place. So that's part of it. And then the other half of it is sort of the B2B side of it. So all the tools that have come onto the market, 
they need data and population data is very hard to come by. And so in the, in the interim, when there's APIs from the different grading companies out there, I think I can service that need as well. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's cool. Nice to know that you want to keep it free or at least the very, very affordable for everybody. And um, uh, we're going to get into it in a second. We're going to go to some comments and we're going to get into sort of what, what, what you see as being a great use of the tool. Uh, and I'm excited to, for you to tell the audience about that. But let's go to a few comments uh, first here. I like this one from Rich Frank. He says, gold doesn't change price. Your money becomes worth less. Yeah, no, that definitely I can agree with that. Um, Criminal Minds says, typical, and welcome to the show, Criminal, says, typical Jeremy, always hyping the market, even when it's pretty evident prices are way down from two years ago. Well, I just want to respond to that criminal mind and say, um, I mean, obviously you're not doing the hobby right because uh, I don't really have any cards that are down from two years ago. But but so so maybe keep on watching sports cards live. Hopefully we'll be able to teach you how to uh, how to hobby how to hobby better. Um, and then uh, says I also said that the the Luca base was fairly priced at two thousand because the demand outweighed the the de- sorry the demand outweighed the demand. I think you meant the demand away the supply. Wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, you know what? What if the card goes back to $2,000 one day? Then will I be right all of a sudden? I, you know, the markets do fluctuate, and I think we all understand that. And I still will say that, you know, pop, there, there's a few. I know Brian Gray has said it, too, that he thinks that down the road, 50, a 15,000 pop won't, won't be considered super high like it is today. Everything's relative, and right now that's super high. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. And I'm not, I can't. I can't. I'm just a guy who does a show. I can't expect to be right 100% of the time. If I get the odd, if I get the odd thing wrong, so be it. But one thing I'm not going to compromise uh, to the satisfaction of the glass half empty contingent of our hobby, of which Criminal Mind I think is the mayor, is that um, I'm going to continue to be positive. If, if you if you want positive hobby content, this is the place uh, to be. Um, let's keep on moving along. Uh, T dot said that the market is very healthy. It's market cap is at a historically very high level. So again, I guess if all you've been, if you've been, if all the cards you've been buying are down in value, you're obviously buying the wrong things or you just, you know, you just caught into the hype a bit too much. So I think there's always options out there for, uh, for people to, to, to not, or to minimize or to mitigate their, their losses. Uh, JG says the card show today was insane. Very busy, strong market for sure, for sure. Peter Collect says it's tough to talk about the market since it's so broad. Very true. Many sports eras, price points, each collector may seem different, see something different based on what they collect. Very true. Very true. As long as you, but at the same time, uh, we're all seeing something different, but it does, it does make sense to sort of take off your, your, I don't say your blinders because I think we all have them on somewhat, but be aware that you know your view isn't everything. So while I recognize that some cards are down in the last two years, some are, but the whole market isn't. The market's actually up considerably over two years. If you look at an index, you look at the card ladder 50, or you just look at, I mean, I don't know, I've been buying cards my whole life. If I look at my collection, the value is up considerably from two years ago. So I guess you know I can pat myself on the back and say I've done it right. And um, hopefully more people uh, and if you're watching quality content, maybe you'll pick up a good tip here or there. So Criminal Mind, keep on watching. Love having you in the chat. Um, okay. Good evening to Benny Cromwell. Great to see you. Great to see you. And oh, lots of comments. Lots of comments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what 
Ian Undercover says, God forbid Jeremy give his take on his show. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I'll, I'll also say to Criminal Mind, Criminal Mind, I didn't invite you here. You know, you don't have to watch me. If you don't want to watch me, like, that's fine by me. That's fine by me. But as long as you're here, enjoy. Enjoy yourself. I don't take, uh, I don't take offense to your erroneous comments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, Ryan, I wanted to get into the fact that you you mentioned to me that gem rate one of the coolest things about it is how people are using it and they're using it to tell stories. And I think that's where really, you know, we're seeing it already. I see it on, I see it on Instagram all the time. Somebody will take a report that you published and they'll put in their story. Someone just did that the other day. They took your story. They took your report. They put in their story and they said, what is the most interesting thing to you on this? And it was the historical uh, data on, on, on the eras that all the card, all the grading companies had graded. And the thing that stuck out the most to me was that SGC had 30% of the pre-war market, basically. I forget the exact uh, the exact stat, but they, they were at 30, like I think it was at 30% of the cards they had graded were pre-war, which was far and away the most of any grading company. And I kind of responded to that person's story. Oh, I think, I think that might've actually, uh, I forget who it was, but I responded to that story and said, Oh, it was Teapot. It was Teapot's story. That's who it was. I responded and I said, people don't realize that SGC has been around for decades. So your tool and the report that you that you published gave people that insight. What are some of the other ways that you can see people telling stories? And what do you like? How how do you see this rolling out in the years ahead for Gemrate in terms of, of storytelling? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that that um, report in general has probably been the most talked about just in the sense of um, there hasn't been much reporting in general for like the broader landscape again of grading and sort of how things compare and so it was interesting to sort of with generate in particular one of the goals here is to bring more data to market and i think this hobby is serviced well by more data being available than less and so that sgc data being available and sort of the bgs data being available relative to psa opened up a conversation there's no nobody knows all the nuance within it other than the grading companies themselves but at least gives uh, starts a discussion, which I think is exciting versus people just, you know, speculating or all these hypotheses being thrown out there. And so it at least starts to give people a reason to go and sort of support things that they've been thinking about. And I think that Gemrate is sort of uh, a big opportunity to do that, not only from a macro standpoint at a grading, you know, company standpoint, but also from a card standpoint, a set standpoint. And so that's where I think storytelling is very exciting in the sense of, well, one, I think it's an incredibly valuable tool for content. I haven't been able to produce even like, you know, a fraction of what I think Gemrate can do for the hobby. And I'm hopeful, you know, you're starting to see more of that come up with the different YouTube channels that are featuring our data. It's very exciting to see more and more people dig into it and use it for content purposes. Um, and then I also think, broadly speaking, there's an opportunity to sort of round that out. So right now we're very focused on supply, but I also think the demand side of it is really interesting as well. And so, you know, the Gemrate story is not only going to be about supply in the long run, that's sort of never been the only vision. It's about sort of helping people uh, support their you know, thoughts in the market. And I, I sort of want to shy away from things like valuation and stuff like that, because I do think that that makes the card market different than the stock market, is that storytelling is what drives, the narratives what drives prices ultimately. There's not the same standardization around metrics and ratios and things like that that exist in the stock market. And so to the degree that I can bring to market or that Gemrate can bring to market things that help facilitate stories, I think it does people well. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all subjective, right? And so it just gives people more things to support their ideas. And I think that existing is better than it not. And so I hope Gemrate can facilitate a lot more of that. You know, yeah, one of the things I want to see as we go forward, as far as data 
being presented by collectors or content creators to their audiences and to their friends and that we see a lot of graphs. Now you see a lot of graphs about how a certain card has performed over time up down. You know, we obviously we have the Q1, the Q1 bubble back in, in this time last year, but whenever, whenever I see a, the graph on the value of a specific card, I would like to see a second curve on that graph showing me the, rate of growth of the population or the frequency of grading like you know if a card goes up in value a ton i want to see how many how many cards like i want to see this i want to see them lined up by date i want to see the value of the card and the amount of the population of that particular card in the grade and as you move along the curve i want to see if i want to see if the pop if the value comes down did the population spike a lot like over, over the course of however many days weeks or months or, or years even i think you know, it tells a more complete story overall on the the item, the collectible, the asset, if you will, right? It's one thing to say that this, well, this card, you know, it went up in value, it went up 10x in a year, and then it came down by, it came down 80%. So it's still double what it was before, but, you know, it went up, it went down. Well, did it come down because the population just went, got out of control? Is there a big bar showing the the increase in the, in the population? I think that's, provides a, a nice rounded and there's probably another metric that can be layered on top of that too but for right now those are two nice data points to to really paint a picture as to what this you know what the how this card is performing why it's performing the way it is and just more information on it more more date more data more detail on that card so you know to the people who put out the graphs start layering on the gemrate graph because one of the things that you that gemrate can do I, I have it no, written down here. You call it, um, you call it's da data replay, data replay. We can go back in time and see what the population was of a card at a certain time. So can I go into Gemrate and, and generate a graph or a, a curve that's going to show me how that card's uh, population changed over time? Yeah, we think that's one of the more, more powerful things that we offer. And it, it took, I, I wanted to wait till we had a decent amount of data to sort of really paint that picture. But yeah, you can look, I mean, since we launched the data, it really, we started collecting it in March of last year. And you can go back and look at how any card, any set has trended over time since then. And, you know, obviously this continues to uh, become more valuable as we continue to sort of add more data to the, to the data set over time here. Um, but to your exact point, yeah, I mean, you want to understand to what degree is this being driven by, you know, increased supply or is it player performance or is it the market moving on to something else? Um, and at the very least, it should be something to consider. And so, yes, you can see that. So there's two ways to use it. One is just to trend it over time, which I think makes perfect sense in the price scenario. And then two, I like to just go look at different, I like to compare a set today versus, uh, you know, eight months ago, the particular one of the sets I'm collecting is a 2014 Kaboom set. And I just like to see like, where are things moving? So one of the challenges that you have today is most of these tools are built through the lens of a card. Right. And so I actually want to see it sometimes through the lens of a set and other players in that set and say, hey, is the act is the LeBron card moving faster than the Durant card? Is it moving faster than the Kobe card? And so when you actually can view it on Gemray, you can see it relative to others, which is a really important feature that we have. So it's not just through the lens of a single card, but you can also look at the whole set. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's just, yeah, another another way to look at, at whatever it is you want to look at with an obvious single card, a whole set. I like I like the versatility of the tool that way. That makes a lot of sense. It just makes your tool that much more useful. You do daily updates now. 
So it's not like you're doing this once a week, once a month. You do daily updates. I know you take a lot of, a lot of pride in that. Why are daily updates to, to the Gemrate data so important? I think, I think um, you know, I made a decision early on to, to not capture this on sort of a, a less frequent basis just because I think it's really important to, um, you know, have that level of granularity to sort of say, okay, PSA graded, BGS graded, SGC graded, all these different cards in one day. What is the makeup of that? You know, do they have sort of, are they, are they going through the backlog in this particular moment? And then we're seeing a lot of the value cards emerge here. And that was what we saw over the summertime. It gave a lot more color around what was coming out of the market. And I was able to see that because of the, the granularity that we we're capturing uh, on a daily basis or at, a very, at the very least a weekly basis. Um, so I think that's very important. And then it's also really cool just to be able to see the anomalies are sort of the the anomalies is probably not the right word, but the pockets of the hobby where people are sort of like investing their energy that they think they're doing under the radar. And it's like all of a sudden 50 of these cards will pop on a single day. And I'm like, oh, that was clearly one submission where somebody's, I'm calling it corner of the market, but they're seeing something that the market's not. And so a lot of that nuance is captured in the gem rate data that you would never know otherwise. And so having it day by day is really important to us. It matters from a macro level so we can paint the picture of here's where things are trending in the hobby. But I also really like it from like a set level because I can kind of understand is it was it a single person? Was there sort of a, a broader theme here? And we're seeing it collectively over time build momentum. And so that stuff emerges when you have that level of granularity that we wouldn't know otherwise. And so that was important to me. You know, again, it's more expensive to do it that way, but I just feel like I'd rather know and be able to answer those questions and have to guess. Yeah, it really just provides better insight. Oh, so that's a uh... That, that, that's great, man. I think it's really cool that you do that and it shows real commitment to the tool and, and a service to the hobby as well. So kudos for you on that. Let's go to a few uh, comments again here. Burrs on the Bat says, I think the real question is who has the superior bald head game? I'm going to give it to you, Ryan. I'm Yours is nice and shiny. I don't have that shine going on right now, but that's just the lighting in the room, I think. Although I am, I am freshly, uh, I gave myself a haircut today. So there we go. There we go. Uh, Studio Sports, happy middle of winter to everyone. Enjoy the cold and the snow. Uh, good evening and welcome to the show. Mosaic Mind says, early 2021 was an outlier anomaly in terms of card value. It's unfair to compare prices now to that distorted moment. Yeah, it's that, I refer to that as the Q1 bubble for sure. Colin Murray, good evening to you. Welcome to the show as always. Uh, Birds on the bat. Uh, this is what I was talking about. He said it was 30.1% of the cards sent to SGC are from the 50s and prior. That doesn't mean that they grade more from that period than PSA necessarily. It just means the largest sect of the SGC's businesses. Yeah, exactly. 30% of the cards they have graded are from 50s and prior, but PSA probably still does more anyway, even though even though they have a lower percentage of their overall submissions. Albert Jones says, love when people say their card is a pop one. The first thing I want to ask is how many were, I, me too. You see a PSA 7 pop one, it's like, so what? Why would you waste characters on pop one and PSA 7? I want to know how many are graded higher. That's very important to me for sure. Colin Murray says, SGC is big on vintage because they are known for grading min-sized cards, whether factory short or not, I think is what he's saying. I, was, I wasn't aware of that uh, myself, but thanks for uh, educating me on that for sure. Triple V, uh, I appreciate the personal and social aspects of our hobby. The myriad of styles and approaches makes it more engaging for me. And sometimes a craze subsides and that's okay too. Yeah, sometimes they, sometimes, hey, attentions focus, uh, refocus, they change. They move on to other things at times for sure. But the one thing about sports cards, people, <laughs> everybody, is that sports cards aren't going anywhere. We're going to go through cycles. We're going to have our ups and our downs, just like we've had recently, maybe more extreme than in the past. It's going to continue, but uh, I'm very bullish uh, and and as as criminal mindset, I'm going to hype the hobby because I do hype the hobby. I can I'll readily admit that I hype the hobby. I hype it 
almost 24 seven. But um, as time goes by, uh, there will continue to be sports cards. There will continue to be collectors. There will continue to be investors and flippers and every uh, every mix of all those people in the hobby. I hope they all there are, and um, and I think it's going to be healthy for decades to come. And hey, and I put my money where my mouth is. So we'll see. We'll see about that. I guess. Uh, okay, uh, Lucky K, does Ryan know the backlog of BGS and their weekly grading capabilities? What is his opinion on the lack of transparency with BGS? Um, why don't you take that, Ryan? I, I don't know, but the lack of transparency, I don't know specifically what, uh, what Lucky is getting at, but at least take the first part if you don't mind. Yeah, I think they were quoted as saying over the summer, uh, I think it was Jeremy who said, uh, Jeremy Murray, I think if I have the name right, he um, said that their capabilities are like 5,000 cards a day. And I would say the data supports that that's probably the high end of what they do. Um, I would say they're anywhere between like three to 5,000 cards graded a day. And, you know, I don't think they work the weekends quite the same way as PSA does either. I don't know that for a fact though, so I don't want to assume, but um, they, you know, as a whole, they're doing somewhere between 10 to 20% of what PSA's volume is. And so it's a much, it's a much smaller uh, capacity or sort of output that they're, they're sort of handling right now. Uh, I don't know what that translates to a backlog standpoint. I don't know that they've ever been uh, specific about it. PSA recently said their backlog was 6.7 million. I imagine BGS is as large, but I don't know where it is relative to PSA. You mentioned uh, today in the report that you put out um, that PSA did major volume yesterday, something like 58,000 cards. Is that what I read? And usually they're down in the 30s, I believe, on a non-weekend, on a non-Sunday sort of thing. So that sounds like a big day. I actually went and I did some math. You know, I, I went, okay, so you got, I'll grab out my, my big accountant calculator here. You got 58,000 cards. You divide that by how many how many graders work at PSA? I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Let's take a guess. A hundred, just for fun. No, I, think I think that's pretty that, close. What's that? I think that's pretty close. Okay, so guess is a hundred. That's 580 cards uh, per grader in the day. If they're working, probably working overtime right now to get through the backlog. Say they're working 10 hour days. That's uh, that's 58 cards an hour. That's just under a card a minute. I I, I mean, again, loot. We're just we're we're really speculating here. We have no idea for sure on on the amount of graders there are. There could be 200 graders, which would give it more. But I mean, these are some of the things that you can do with the data that 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 you're producing and and um, kind of try to try to triangulate some some other information and see. But is that uh, from your experience? And I did look at your bar graph. Fifty eight thousand was like the tallest bar on that graph going back like six months. Um, any idea why or how? Or maybe they just maybe a, a group of new uh, a, a new uh, hiring class of graders kind of graduated to to grading now. Like, how do you explain that? Yeah, I think that's going to be the new normal. I think we're going to see, you know, if, if I was at PSA, I think the goal would be to get to, you know, a million cards a month sooner than later. And they've also spoke publicly that they want to have the backlog mostly cleared out. Kevin Lenate said this on a recent podcast by the fall. And so to do that, you know, they have to average almost a million cards a month if they're only devoting 20% of volume to, um, you know, the regular submissions and sort of the the uh, higher higher fee submissions. And so I think that the 50,000 range, I mean, that was one, the only, I think the second or third time I've seen that in our data. Uh, so it was definitely jarring to see. And also I think it is, I think there's November, December, you know, they're subject to all the different things we have been, which is, you know, you've seen COVID spikes. You've also seen, you know, obviously there's the holidays and vacations and all this stuff. So I think they're probably up to full speed right now. And I think that the 50,000 thing will no longer be sort of 
shocking and something that we can expect to see a lot more in the future. So, you know, they've been using 40,000 as their sort of line that they're excited about. And, you know, they hit that three times in December. I, I would venture to guess that they hit that at least 10 times in January, if not more. Yeah. Okay. Well, t- time will tell. We'll see. I think the people in the backlog are excited to see those numbers. So, um, the question was posed earlier by by someone in the chat. We have to talk about this. I think it's it's very interesting. Uh, a universal pop report, a global pop report. Uh, is Gemray potentially the beginning of of that universal pop report that will aggregate the populations of cards from? PSA, BGS, SGC, CSG, what I call the big four. Um, do you do you have that in, in, in mind for a future rollout or a future feature or, or benefit of, of Gemray? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that that global or total pop report is very much on our radar. Um, we, we, we have the data from the, the three primary grading companies that I was focused on initially now. It's just a matter. There's a lot of work that goes into structuring it and sort of making sure that when you type in a generic search that you can sort of see that and get what you expect um, from a, a population report back from all three grading companies. And that, it, you know, again, they don't report the data the same. And so there's a lot of work that's going to have to go in sort of mapping it. So it's not something that's going to be on the market probably in Q1 from us, but it's very much on our radar. And that was our goal from the start again. It's not, and I don't only want the total pop to be discussed either. I want you to be able to see and break down how that shakes out because the landscape in 2014 was overweight BGS versus what it is now. And so, you know, you want to be able to, to understand these dynamics. If you're looking at an older card, you want to know that, hey, the market has shifted over time. So a total pop or a global pop is very much on our radar. And then being able to drill down into that is also very much something we want to be able to do. And sooner than later, though, very much. Okay, so something to look forward to. And maybe uh, maybe we heard maybe we heard it here first, everybody. Uh, gem rate may be where you'll find your first uh, global or universal pop report. That would be really, really cool. Um, okay, I'm going to go to some comments here. We're going to we're going to start to wrap this up. We do have Brian Gray coming on after hours. We're going to try and go live uh, with, in about 15 minutes on that stream. So everybody, that'll be on a different uh, in a different studio, a different uh, different broadcast. Be sure to check it out. And on the ticker right now, I'll let everybody know that we have we. I, along with uh, with some help, have launched a new YouTube channel called Sports Cards Live Clips. So brand new, just launched not even a week ago, I don't think. But uh, I'd appreciate it. Go check it out. Subscribe to that channel, trying to build this one up. It's going to be pretty cool. We're going to be dropping one video every day, every single day, a short clip, anywhere from like probably under two minutes up to about 10 or 11 minutes with uh, sort of highlights from these episodes. So if you want to know what we thought was kind of the the, the the, the best nuggets of these shows, of the long-form episodes, you'll be able to see them on the Clips channel. So do me a favor, go subscribe to that one. Ryan, we'll, we'll just wait for a sec while everybody goes to do that and uh, let them come back from doing that. And I greatly do greatly appreciate that, everybody. If, you, if you'd if you go ahead and, and subscribe to Sports Cards Live Clips, be very cool. I want to welcome my friend Brett Miles to the show. Says, good evening. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope all is well. Love listening to these great conversations at Triple D. A myriad of styles and approaches makes it more engaging for me. In quotes, Brett 100% agrees. I knew you would agree with that, Brett. Great to see you. And Brett, I still have those wax uh, wrappers for you. We got to make that happen. Junk wax packs, hashtag sports cards is a lifestyle. I think based on what I said that I'm hyping the hobby 24-7, which I am. And I commit to you guys. I commit, I commit to this audience. The Sports Cards Live viewers, I will always hype our hobby. JG says PSA giving out 110 out of 10 cards in bulk submissions speeds up the process. 
I mean, we can we can throw out comments like that if we want, but I, I don't think it's really fair. Ryan says, going back a few minutes to comments by Criminal Mind, Jeremy was actually correct when he said that the Luca was priced fairly due to supply and demand. The car was at 2K because people were, in all caps, willing to purchase it at that level. Now, neither Jeremy or myself purchased that car at 2K, but enough people did to make that the price point. So he was correct, and you're an idiot. Let us enjoy the show. Dinga. Ryan. Thank you so much for uh, for backing me up. I appreciate it and, and the laugh as well. Uh, Darren says, uh, whoa, physical calculators still exist. This math teacher loves it. More card math lessons, Jeremy, maybe another channel in the making in addition to your clips channel. Maybe, maybe. Collectors League, Jeremy wants to know, Ryan, are you going to the Dallas show? Uh, I'm not at this time. I would like to. I was My only plan was to travel to Mint Collective this month and obviously that got pushed out. Yeah, I'd love to go too, especially with the mint being postponed. But one day, one day, Colin Murray says the pop report will never be accurate because the amount of slabs that get cracked and sent back in, including collectors. I know the crack nines to put in binders raw. No kidding. I've heard of that, too. And I think I think that's just something that we accept now that the pop reports have a margin of error based on this. So, you know, similar to the way I know card ladder with their card ladder value, they actually give you the confidence level of their CL value. They give you the, and then every day they report on how the CL value uh, performed against actual auction results. And they tell you how successful they were. I haven't looked at it in a few days, but a few days ago was 75%. That's not so bad considering you're totally, you know, there's no way to predict the market, right? 75% accuracy is not that bad. It might be neat to see one day, and I'm not telling you how to run your tool, Ryan, but it might be neat to one day see some sort of uh, confidence interval as to, you know, while, you know, or even an asterisk that says, you know, while the pop reports are what they are and we don't, you know, we're sourcing that data, but there is a margin of error due to, and some of the different reasons why that could happen. You never know. Sounds interesting. Rock Latex says from a data standpoint, that universal pop report is difficult because of the different nomenclature, each grading company's names, it's, it's grades would be an impressive feat. Yeah, we talked about that the other day. I think you just have to do Gem Mint versus Gem Mint, right? Pristine versus pristine where it exists, but I'll leave that to you. You're the expert at that, Ryan. And uh, Skeppy says, Jeremy, appreciate and respect your thought. What I'm saying is when manipulation in the stock market is found, real consequences can be enforced. Almost no consequences are given in the card market. That's true, Skeppy, unless you got card porn on your on your behind, then then there might be some consequences for sure. All right, all right. Anything else you want to talk about, Ryan, gem rate or otherwise, before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I don't have anything else on the agenda. This was awesome. I, I was excited to just tell a little bit more of our story. Uh, I think we were able to discuss a little bit uh, more about what we plan to do with gem rate. In general, I just, I've been very behind the scenes in the hobby too, because I'm just building Gemrate. So I was excited. I was excited just to introduce myself to more people and sort of uh, just let know people where I'm coming from and how I'm thinking about it. And I guess the only thing I will say that I think is super important is that I am very open to feedback. We are very open to feedback. I say we, because I plan to expand the team this year. Um, we want to hear from everybody ideas, you know, we're very open to suggestions. So, you know, uh, We've heard from a lot of people already, and there's a lot of things that have sort of been surfaced as a result of that feedback. But yeah, I would just like I would just like to put that out there. Give us a shout out, and we'll definitely have a conversation and, and try to get a better understanding of what you'd like to see. Uh, it's a, it's it's I, I think it's really cool that you you do put that out there, everybody. We have we have Ryan's personal Instagram, his jet the Gemrate Instagram, and the website on the ticker right now. If you have not visited Gemrate.com, 
do so. I've got a pin to my toolbar, my my bookmarks bar. I, I'm checking it out every day now. I want to see I want to see those daily updates, and uh, I, I just think it's so cool. So I uh, really want to congratulate. I want to congratulate you and thank you at the same time, Ryan. You know, congratulate you on just the fact that you've done this in such a, a, a good way. Like, you know, you're just, it's, it's just really authentic and, uh, and it's simple. You lay it out really well. You seem to have identified what I think are a lot of the, the key points that people want to see. You've got that dashboard with like the homepage, which gives you those key stats every day. So I think that's, that's just great. Uh, Darren asked, does Gemrate have an app? That's a great question. We don't. And the mobile experience definitely is, uh, inferior to the desktop I mean, or sort of the, the computer experience. And so it's something we need to work on. I, I built this with the idea of, you know, you're sitting at your computer researching a bunch of different things. And so it's built for that screen and mobile needs to be improved. So it's definitely an area of focus. No app yet, uh, but just in general, we want to improve mobile because I'm seeing now and hearing more that people have shows would like to have this data available too. I want to, sorry, one more question. Pretty important actually, now that I remember it. Uh, PSA, obviously they, they must know what you're doing by now. Uh, what do you have a relationship with them? Are they aware of, are they aware of what you're doing? Do they like it? Uh, can you speak at all to, to, to that? And, and like, is there, you know, could they cut you off of this data? Like how, how do you, uh, what were there, are there risks there for you? Yeah. So two things on it. So one, I, to my earlier point, I never really closed the loop on this, but I think, I think it's to the benefit of the greater companies to work with what I'm doing in the sense that I think, again, the more that people can tell stories with the data, the better. And the more, you know, you see this in sort of, I, I don't want to, go too deep into NFTs again, but you see that with the NFT world, there's open data. So you have a lot of tooling built around it and there's a lot of momentum around that. The degree that people are willing to work with me on this, I want to help facilitate just people having a better understanding of the different grading companies and the nuance there. And so I think there's a ton of potential for them to work with me. And I hope that they're open to that. To your question, they can, in theory, make my life harder. I mean, this data is publicly available and you know that was one of the reasons I moved forward with this project. And I do have, I do have a relationship in the sense of, I know some people there and they know, I know that they know what I'm doing. Uh, I know that they talk about it internally. I know that it's, you know, something that they also want, they would rather own a lot more of the storytelling than of their, you know, of the PSA story, for example, here, um, than what, you know, maybe the role that I'm playing. And so I think you're seeing that now they're, they're starting to be more active on social. They're starting to share more updates. And I, I think that's great. I'm, I'm excited that we may have in any way played a role in sort of them being more transparent. So, and that's never been the role of Gemrate is to sort of tell the story for the creating companies. We want to have a tool out there that allows people to dig deeper and really tell their own stories. I don't want to own the stories of the companies. And so um, I know them. I think that they're okay with what I'm doing, um, but I don't really know. I don't know. At any given day, I'm sort of like, yeah, I think they love it. Oh, I think they hate it. So I don't really know, but I, uh, I'm going to keep pushing forward no matter what, um, just in the sense of, I think that they'll never tell the full story in the sense of giving all the data available. And so, I want to, and this is all the companies, I mean, uh, so I want to make sure I can help facilitate that and give people options. I don't want it just to be through the lens of the people who own the data who are grading their own homework. I want to give people sort of an independent view of the, the data. So that's my hope. Uh, and hopefully it's not too challenging to provide that in the future, but we'll see. Yeah, well, good luck to you. I hope I hope you're able to continue and that they uh, they like what you're doing versus versus don't. So, okay, I'm going to address these final two comments from Criminal Mind, and then we're going to wrap this up. And again, I'll be back with Brian Gray on After Hours. We will uh, we will go live in about six seven. Well, I'll call within ten minutes from now. Um, so, Criminal Mind says, Jeremy, it is not wrong to hype the hobby, but it is wrong to steer people wrong with bad advice. 
I completely agree with that criminal mind. That, that's exactly right. I would never still steer people wrong with bad advice. I, I'd actually, I'll put my advice up against anybody else in the hobby who gives advice. Uh, I give very little advice compared to a lot of content creators, but um, but I would put my advice up against anybody's in this in this whole hobby. Anybody. So um, you want to? Anyway, I'll I'll leave that at that. Criminal mind goes on to say the Luca base was never going to stay at 2k with a pop of 20k and growing. Uh, it, it didn't. So you're right. It didn't. Uh, in hindsight, I can't argue with what you're saying, but you do have the luxury of hindsight at this point in time. And I don't know if I ever said it was going to stay there. I don't, I cannot see myself ever saying that it would have stayed there. So, um, but uh, again, uh, you're watching this one criminal mind uh, along with uh, over a hundred other people. I do thank everybody for tuning in tonight. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Ryan, again, I love what you're doing, man. Keep up the great work guys. Check out the ticker. Make sure you're following Gemrate on IG. You're going to want to see the post that Ryan puts up there through that account. Check out the website if, if you haven't yet. And if you want to follow his personal account, it is on there as well. So I do want to thank <laughs> Lucky Case as Criminal Mind. Smash that like, like button and relax. Yeah, Criminal, smash that like button. We I'd appreciate it. Darren says, respectfully, I've watched many of these episodes and never felt I've received bad advice. Good content, great stories. Thank you very much, Darren. Collectors League, Jeremy says, Jeremy, thanks for creating great content. Thank you very much. Je We're both named Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. And Ryan says, it doesn't matter if it's going to stay there or not, man. It was there. So that was, thank you very much, Ryan. All right, again, to this Ryan, <laughs> you guys, thank you for having my back. Thank you for having my back, birds. Um, Ryan Staczynski, thanks again for joining the show. Great job. Love what you're doing. Keep up, keep it up. We'll, we'll get you back on later on in the year, hopefully, and get an update, see what's going on with you and Gemrate and, and all the uh, all the new features that you've added. Everybody, be sure to come on. Brian Gray, we're going to be live in less than 10 minutes. Ryan, final comments from you, and then this episode is done. No, just wanted to say thank you as well. Appreciate everything you're doing for the hobby. Appreciate this forum to just tell more of our story. And yeah, uh, thank you again. This was great. You're welcome. Thanks so much for making time, Ryan. We'll see you again soon, everybody. Thanks for the final comments coming in. Really appreciate it. Sam, Skeppy, Justin, Ian Undercover, Albert Jones, Craig Booge. Appreciate Oh, Craig says, look at that. We got to take a time for this. He says, I made 100K off of Jeremy's advice last year. If that's true, again, like I said, I'll put my advice up against anybody's in our whole industry. I will do that. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, all right, that's it, everybody. We'll see you on After Hours with Brian Gray. Ryan, hang tight one second. Everybody else, see you soon. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.